Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning. My name is Troy, and it's a great to be standing here before you again, sharing God's word with you once again. Uh, as you know, we're in the book of Isaiah, all right? And Isaiah is a prophet. In the Old Testament, we have numerous books that fall under the section called prophets. And for most of us, these books simply are hard to understand. For some of us, we may even try to avoid them altogether. Well, I have good news for you today. Isaiah 42 has an amazingly clear message that we can understand. But to make it clear and understandable, I want to start in Genesis chapter 1. And I want to lead you to the amazing revelation Isaiah will make. So we start in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And what do we see? We see the creation story. We learn that man and woman are created in the image of God. And they are given a mandate by God that is fitting with the fact that they're made in his image and likeness. They are told to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and rule over it. As image bearers, they are co-reigning with God over the earth. In Genesis 3, we learn about sin as we witness the fall of Adam and Eve. We see that sin has consequences, terrible consequences, that separate us from God. And we see the wonderful creation of Genesis 1 and 2 cursed, and these curses affect mankind's God-given mandate. Thorns and thistles will make subduing the earth and ruling over it more difficult. And pain and labor will be the means through which mankind multiplies and fills the earth. In Genesis 4, we are introduced to Cain and Abel. And unfortunately, the spread of sin. We witness the first murder as Cain takes the life of his brother Abel. But after Eve gives birth, to Seth, and then Seth has a son, Enosh, we see a glimmer of hope in the concept of the righteous remnant, a godly remnant that is always left behind. And this chapter ends with, then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. In Genesis 5, we see there is hope in the midst of growing and expanding sin. We learn that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And more hope comes in the birth of Noah, so a righteous remnant still remains. In Genesis 6, we see that sin has not only spread, but evil and wickedness are at its peak. So much so that God limits humanity's lifespan to 120 years. Previously, people were living hundreds of years, even over 900 years. But that was not all. God even came to the point that he regretted creating mankind. In verse 5, we read, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
So Noah saved us all. Continuing in chapter six, we read that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And in the midst of extreme corruption, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark. In Genesis 7, the unthinkable happens. A little over 1,600 years after the creation of mankind, God decides to wipe out all living, be living beings and destroy the earth. That is, except for Noah and his family and all the animals gathered in the ark. Verse 21, all flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. In Genesis 8, the floodwaters subside, and God starts over. He promises to never do this again. Verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. And in Genesis 9, God basically starts over. He reaffirms the original mandate of Genesis 1 to multiply, fill the earth, and rule over it. He says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the chapter continues with God's first covenant with humanity, known as the Noahic Covenant. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself to establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there be again a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I will set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign for you, a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. So we see the original mandate, a new covenant with man and the rainbow is a sign of that covenant. In Genesis 10, we fast forward to the results of the mandate and we see the numerous descendants of Noah listed out. This chapter also gives us a peek into the geopolitical landscape of the Old Testament. We see in the genealogies names and locations like Canaan and Babel and Shinar, Assyria, Nineveh, Philistines, and all the ites that we read about, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, and on and on and on. Also Sidon and Gaza and Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's all listed there. And the chapter ends with this. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. So we learn that nations are formed and separated across the globe. But it's not until Genesis 11, the next chapter, that we learn how these nations came about. The event is known as the Tower of Babel, where we see the true power of unity for those bearing the image of God. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top 
will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now, nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down in there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. So the opposite to the power of unity, we see that separating humanity into nations with different languages weakens the power of sin and its spread. God makes a strategic decision to limit and contain the ever-expanding sin that we're seeing in Genesis. So in the first chapter, first 11 chapters of Genesis, we see the creation, the image of God, our mandate, fall, sin, consequences of that sin, wicked and evilness spreading. We see that God wipes out nearly everything, but we see a righteous remnant in Enoch and Noah and others. And we see the Noahic covenant, but still, though he has a covenant with his people, sin persists. And then we see in Babel, instead of cursing the earth, Again, like he did with the fall and like he did with the flood, God decides to slow down the spread of sin and slow the power of sin and contain it within these numerous, numerous nations. Now, in Genesis 12, we get introduced to Abram, whom I'm going to call Abraham the entire time. And we learn that God has a strategic redemptive plan that he is working out. We know sin has been spreading. And though, even though now it is contained with a nation, sin still persists, and it's a major problem. And with humanity's original mandate being to multiply, sin could easily get completely out of control. In addition, we know that God has made a covenant not to destroy mankind and earth again. So God reveals his plan to reach all of the dispersed nations through Abraham, and this is known as the Abrahamic Covenant which Sarita read earlier about. God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In Genesis chapter 13, we see the plan includes land for Abraham and his descendants. And the great nation promised in 12 means descendants in numbers too great to count. For the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Then in Genesis 15, God promises Abraham a son, which is a significant prerequisite to having descendants too numerous to count. And we learn the amazing reality that righteousness comes by faith in God. Abraham believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And then God officially makes a covenant with Abraham, promising land, descendants, and blessing. In Genesis 17, this covenant is reaffirmed, and the sign of the covenant is given, circumcision. So we have a mandate, we have two covenants, and we have two signs of those covenants. In Genesis 18 to 35, we see that Isaac is born to Abraham 
and Jacob is born to Isaac. We see Jacob's ladder, the dream or the Abrahamic covenant is confirmed yet again. We see the sons of Jacob being born, 11 of them, with the 11th being Joseph. Jacob wrestles with God, and Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And then in verse 35, we see the Abrahamic covenant, I mean, chapter 35, we see the Abrahamic covenant confirmed to Jacob, and Jacob's wife, Rachel, dies, giving birth to Benjamin, the 12th son of Jacob, or Israel. So what do we have? We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob is Israel. We have 12 sons. We have the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the birth of God's people, the nation of Israel. And we see God's redemptive plan being worked out. The slowing down and containing of sin via the nations, using one nation to reach all the others. Blessing and disciplining nation by nation. And God using his people, Israel, to reach out to all the nations. This is his redemptive plan. In the remaining chapters of Genesis 36 to 50, we see the Abrahamic covenant taking shape and persisting through the generations. Joseph's dream, the one that got his brothers really angry and resulted in being sold into slavery to Egypt. But after time, Joseph, Joseph is made ruler over Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And then the last chapter 50, we see the death of Jacob or Israel and the death of Joseph. The last verses read, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land, the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. So then after Abraham, we meet Moses and learn about the Mosaic Covenant, which is the giving of the law to, the, to God's people Israel and laying out how their relationship is to work, both blessings and curses. In Exodus, we see the release of God's people from slavery as they leave Egypt to the promised land. Leviticus is all about the law and the outworking of this third covenant with Moses and Israel. Numbers reveals how this nation is growing. And Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And so back to God's redemptive plan, we see that he will use the law to reveal God's righteousness. He will magnify the law to showcase his justice. He will attract the nations to Israel and their God. Israel was to be God's servant to reach the nations. Now, we can't go through the rest of the, Testament, the Old Testament well, we could, but I'm going to be nice to you today. But we can highlight David and the Davidic covenant. Sarita read this one as well in our scripture reading. 2 Samuel 7 gives us a promise of a descendant of David as king over Israel. This king will usher in the promises to Abraham, land, descendants, and blessing. And we see the concept of the Messiah, the anointed one. So what is the Old Testament about? It's about God's redemptive plan. God's dealing with a sinful world according to his covenants, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. But we see that God's plan using Israel doesn't appear to be working very well. So what does God do? 
he sends prophets to warn Israel and to bring them back into a proper covenantal relationship with God. So when they are right, they can reach out to the nations. And so finally, we come to Isaiah, a prophet of God. Now, Isaiah is doing as prophets do. He is calling Israel back to holiness and obedience. He is reminding them of their special covenantal relationship with God. And he is pointing out the sinful conditions in which they are living. The Mosaic Covenant, which was centered around God's law, clearly laid out the consequences if they disobeyed. And one of those consequences was exile from the promised land. But the Abrahamic covenant assured that the land would be theirs. So we find a message of both punishment and restoration. The super simple outline of Isaiah is this. You heard it last week from Eric. Chapters 1 to 39 are about judgment, the future judgment that both Israel and the nations will face. And very specifically, we learn of Israel's exile into Babylon. 40 to 66 are about comfort. Isaiah offers the comforting words of restoration that will come after judgment, being restored to the promised land and seeing the establishment of his kingdom. The judgment section highlights Israel's sin and how the problem of, of sin needs to be dealt with in order to regain a right relationship with God. And the comfort section speaks of deliverance, of salvation and hope after the judgment. Our chapter 42 for today is in this comfort section of Isaiah. And we now get to see the great revelation that Isaiah has for us. Verse one of chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The first thought of those hearing this would naturally be God's people, Israel, God's servant, Israel. We saw that last week in chapter 41. Israel is called my servant. But as Isaiah goes on, he says in verse two, he will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. Something is different here. Verse three, a bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So this servant will not cry out or raise his voice. He won't even break a bruised or crushed reed. Now I lived in Egypt and along the Nile River grows reeds. You may know that the ancient Egyptians made papyrus from those reeds. You've probably seen a dried reed along some riverbank somewhere. To be bruised or crushed is to be damaged, but not completely broken off or broken down. The servant will be gentle, so gentle that he will not break a reed that is already bruised, so gentle that a candle wick at its last moments, when it's so small and so dim, will not be put out by this servant. Yet this humble and gentle servant will bring forth justice. Verse four, he will not be disheartened or crushed until he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. When we see the words disheartened and crushed in verse four, those words are the same words used for the bruised reed and the dim wick. So what it's actually saying here is he will not grow dim like the wick nor will he be bruised or crushed like the reed. 
This servant will not be fragile or weak. He will not give up, but with persistence, he will establish justice in the earth. And what are the coastlands? Well, the coast is literally the end of the earth. That is what is meant here. The ends of the earth will wait expectantly for this justice. Remember, the law is about righteousness and justice. People will wait to hear these righteous decrees. And as we read over verses 5 through 7, we see the true God, the one and only creator of God, the great I am, is declaring all of this. And he has commissioned this servant to mediate a covenant to people, to be a light to the nations. And as this light comes into the darkness of dungeons where prisoners are held, they will be able to see and be freed from their captivity. The picture is, is of prisoners in a dungeon. These are not hardened criminals, but are what we may call political prisoners, or prisoners as a result of societal injustices. This servant is to bring justice, not injustice, like the world is accustomed to. Think of people who have been held captive by people stronger and more powerful than them. The image here is of those who are oppressed or taken captive. So who is this servant? I'm sure you've realized by now that it is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. This is the first of what is commonly called the servant songs in Isaiah. We will see three more in the weeks to come. And this servant is like no other. He is gentle and humble. We will see in the other servant songs that he will even be a suffering servant. Everything we have talked about concerning Israel, we will see this ideal servant fulfilling our mandate, the covenants, and God's redemptive mission. This is the good news of Isaiah. Behold, look at, see here, my servant, my chosen one, the servant that will accomplish everything the servant Israel failed at. There is hope, there is comfort, there is salvation. There is deliverance from darkness and sin. Isaiah 42 reveals the great news of a servant that will not fail. Now in 8 through 17, we again see in verse 8 that this is the Lord speaking, who will not share his glory or praise with any other. In verse 9, behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Again, we see, behold, God wants our attention. That's what prophets do. Do you see what I have prophesied in the past and it came to be? I'm doing it again right now. I have new things for you, great comfort and hope, and I'm telling you beforehand. And what should our response be to this? Verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise from the ends of the earth. He then mentions the wilderness or the desert, the mountains, the coastlands. We see again the ends of the earth from the highest points to the most remote regions. God's praise should be sung everywhere to the ends of the earth. And we see that even though God's servant will be humble and gentle in mediating this new covenant, and I must point out that we do not learn about the new covenant in its proper form until Jeremiah, but we see hints of it here in the servant song. So even though we see the gentle side of the servant, God himself, in view of all of human history, is a patient God who will ultimately prevail in his redemptive mission as well as overcome his enemies. He is not just talk and prophecies, but one day 
He will emerge like a warrior, like a man of war, like a woman in labor, who after a time of waiting and restraint will suddenly scream out in action. Like that woman, God has been patient, patient with the sin of his creation, the sin of his people, Israel. He has restrained himself, but he has severe actions of judgment waiting for those who reject him and trust in other gods. God restrains himself as he suffers and is grieved by the sin of his people and his creation. But one day he will scream out and bring judgment upon those who reject the servant. Now, in this last section of Isaiah 42, God references his servant Israel. So he goes back to my servant Israel. In contrast to the ideal servant of Israel, Israel is deaf and blind. They are God's servant and messenger, and in a covenant of peace with God. But yet so blind and so deaf, they see but do not observe. Their ears are open, but they do not hear. God tried to showcase his law through Israel, his great and glorious law, but all Israel did was disobey it. As a result, Israel has faced judgment in the past and will also face judgment in the future. We do not see it here, but we know that their exile to Babylon is yet to come. Instead of reaching out to the nations, they will be taken captive by the nations. They will be plunder and loot and spoil for the nations. They will be the ones held captive in prisons. And who will deliver them over to the nations? But God himself. They sinned against God, and he will pour out his anger against them. They will be burned, but pay no attention to it. God will deliver them over to the nations. And only God will be able to rescue them back. So Isaiah 42 presents a stark contrast. It begins with the ideal servant who faithfully accomplishes his mission. It ends with a previous servant of God who is now in servitude. The servant Israel has not learned its lesson, nor is capable of accomplishing its original mission. Isaiah 42 begins with a servant who will be a light to the nations it ends with a servant held captive in darkness. But what is so amazing about Isaiah 42 is that Jesus is revealed as God's ultimate strategic solution to mankind's sin and to the fulfillment of God's redemptive mission. As I already said, we have to wait until Jeremiah hits the scene before the new covenant is revealed. But in Isaiah, we see that this ideal servant will fulfill the covenants of God, and we see pre cursors to the new covenant. So what do we conclude from all of this today? In view of God's redemptive mission and Isaiah revealing the ideal servant to us who has established a new covenant by his blood that is through his death on the cross, a covenant that says anyone who places their faith in Jesus can be saved from sin and granted eternal life with God. A covenant that promises forgiveness of sin, internal renewal of the heart, and intimate knowledge of God. In view of all this, we find ourselves in one of two camps. There are two kinds of people here today, two kinds of people listening. There are those who have beheld Jesus and put their faith in him. And like Abraham, their faith has resulted in becoming righteous before God. And there are those who have not yet seen Jesus for who he truly is. They've not beheld his glory, his righteousness, 
his mercy, his love, his forgiveness, his offer of eternal life with God, and have not placed their faith in him. And the message to you is, behold, my servant Jesus. Here he is. See him. Look upon him. Trust him. He is the answer to the problem of sin and everything that results from sin. Know that you are here today because God is on a mission to bring you back into a right relationship with him. He is pursuing you. He is revealing himself to you. It is no mistake that you are here. It is no mistake if a friend or relative brought you today. It is no mistake if you searched for a church online and ended up here. As we've seen today, God is on a redemptive mission. And as we will see later in Isaiah in the weeks to come, he will not hold back anything to see it accomplished. He will give up his own son as a sacrifice forever to forever deal with the problem of sin. And anyone, yes, anyone from any nation, speaking any language, coming from any world religion or no religion at all, can trust Jesus. Yes, anyone spread across this globe since the day of the Tower of Babel. Anyone can behold Jesus and put their faith in him. Anyone can trust in the sacrifice of Jesus to take care of their own problem with sin. And so I tell you now, behold Jesus. You can see no one greater. Trust your entire life to him today. And I assure you, you will sing a new song. You will experience a peace and joy that goes beyond all understanding. For the first time in your life, you will feel whole. Why? Because you will finally be what God created you to be, in a right relationship with him, with a renewed heart and a renewed life. Now for the believers here with us, those who have placed their faith in Jesus, the ideal servant has made you a servant of God and a part of God's servant, the church. God's redemptive mission has not ended. You are now part of it. Instead of one nation reaching all the other nations, Countless servants of God are scattered across the globe, reaching the nations, bringing individuals from every people group and every language on earth to himself. There is no longer one temple for one nation of Israel to attract people to. No, there are as many temples of God as there are believers in Christ. You're, you are a walking temple of God that can cross any boundary on earth. Christ is in you. You've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are carrying Christ to the nations. The first message to you is the same. Behold my servant Jesus, but for a different reason, to see him and to be like him, to carry out the redemptive mission of God, to enjoy his intimacy and his love. But you also have a second message. Consider God's servant Israel. Have you stopped looking? Have you stopped observing? Have your eyes turned away from God? Do not be someone who beheld Jesus, but no longer beholds him today. And a final message to us all. Whether a believer or not, God is about his mission. There's no stopping it. I know he is trying to reveal something to you today. Trying to speak to you trying to get your attention, just like the prophets were. But if we are honest, we're probably trying to block it out, 
stay distracted so we don't really see or hear or understand what he is trying to do in our life. We cannot be like Israel, unaware of God and his workings. We need to be aware. We need to, be, we need to open our eyes, see him, listen to him, trust him. Behold, my servant Jesus.